reading the word, you know, it actually, once you start doing it, it becomes easier and easier that you turn a verse of scripture that you're reading into a prayer and say, Lord, this is, this is my prayer. This is my desire. And so I trust that as we grow in this experience, we will come to understand the great power there is in praying the word of God. So we've been unpacking the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. And this morning, we are going to be speaking on the theme of the hope of his calling. So I want to invite you to turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 1, where, are we're, where we are reading the same prayer that we've been on for the uh, past few weeks. And you're probably saying, are we going to read the same text again? Well, you know, these prayers are wonderful prayers to memorize them. And the easiest way to memorize them is to repeat them over and over again. So we're going to do that beginning in verse 17 this morning. Praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, oh, hallelujah, for the Father of glory, who desires to give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Father, we thank you that the word of God says the entrance of your word brings light. And so we pray for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We pray that the word that we hear this morning would find a lodging place in our hearts we pray that the word that we hear this morning would become part and parcel of who we are and will bring transformation and change that we might live to the honor and the glory of your great name. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Well, we've been answering some questions as we've been looking at this passage of scripture and this morning, we're going to answer the fourth question as to, as to uh, we continue to seek to unlock uh, the treasures of this prayer. Why is Paul praying that God would bring enlightenment to the Ephesian Christians? We find the answer to that in verse 18. That you may know what then is it that they need to know? And that reminds me of wise words that I've once heard. The worst place to be in life is not to know what you don't know, because most often it's something that you need to know. The reality is we all have gaps in our knowledge, whether we'd like to admit it or not, the reality is there are lacks in our knowledge base. There are gaps. There are things that we just don't know. 
I learned that psychologists, by the way, we could be going to the next slide, please. So the fourth question is why is Paul praying uh, for divine enlightenment? And the next slide, that you might know what, and in verse 18, we are going to read what the answer to that question is. See, we, uh, I started saying what the psychologists tell us what these gaps are called. They are called the illusion of explanatory depth. Well, I'm not going to give you the scientific definition of what that means because it sounds like Greek to me, but it's just a simple phrase that means we don't know everything that we think we know, and we're not as smart as we think we are. And sadly, as Christians, the reality is that we're often in that place where we don't know the things of God that we need to know. And we're reminded that when Paul is speaking of knowing here, he's not talking about something that you know in your mind. He's speaking about an experientially knowing. He's talking about something that is not only fact, but it is something that is experience. It's not the accumulation of mere intellectual knowledge. It's the knowledge of God's truth and God's word that has come to our hearts as revelation. And when revelation comes to us, something miraculous happens. That miraculous something is a change takes place in our lives. You know, the word of God has such awesome power. I'm always amazed at that verse of scripture that we read in James 1 and 21, where James admonishes the believers to receive with meekness the implanted word. In the King James, I believe it's the engrafted word. Because this engrafted word, once it is grafted into us, it has the power to save our souls. You know, the wonder of modern medicine is that they could take different parts of another person's healthy body and put them and replace them where your body is not healthy, for example, a kidney, a liver. How many people have gotten a new lease on life because they were able to receive a healthy kidney, a healthy liver, and that became their liver that started working on their behalf? When people are seriously burned, they take skin from somewhere else and put it where your skin has been burned so severely, and that skin then becomes your skin, just like new. Do you see the parallel here of what takes place when we ingest the Word of God? The DNA of the Word of God has the power to change our DNA. What does James say? It has the power to save our souls. 
And we said, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought I was saved when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Yes, you were saved. Your spirit was saved. God came in and gave you a new heart. He gave you a new spirit. He gave you a new life. He raised you from the dead. But our soul is in an experience of progressive salvation. How we think, how we feel, what we want, are our desires always God-pleasing and God-honoring? Is our will always aligned with the Word of God? Are our emotions always God-honoring? They're not when we fly off the handle. Because the word of God says the anger of man never works the righteousness of God. But we're saved. Yes, we're saved. But the soul needs more salvation. So that anger problem that some people have needs to be something that becomes less and less. And do you know how it becomes less and less? Do you know how that lust problem becomes less and less? It's as we take in the engrafted word. It has the power to save our souls. So Paul's focus in this prayer is that the Ephesian Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they might know what. What do they need to know? If you look closely at this passage of scripture, you will see that there are three what's. And they all pertain to what God has given us in Christ Jesus. These three what's are essential to us as believers. And they're outlined in verses 18 and 19. Number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to his people? So this morning, we're going to look at the first of these as Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. And as we should also pray that God opens the eyes of our hearts so that we might know what is the hope of his calling. And Paul prays this prayer, and we need to pray this prayer because this isn't something that you get merely through your intellect. God wants to bring the revelation of this truth home to our hearts. And when we get the revelation of this truth in our spirits, it will transform and radicalize the way we live our lives. Now, you will notice later in this epistle that Paul talks about the hope of your calling. And that's in chapter 4 and verse 4. But here he refers to the hope of his calling. Well, what is the difference? Why is he making a distinction in now placing the emphasis on the hope of his calling? The answer is simple because he's talking about our salvation. And when it comes to our salvation, it has everything to do with God. How could it have anything to do with us? Because the Bible says we were dead 
in our trespasses and sin. Now tell me, does a dead person have power to do anything? No, we don't. So salvation is all of grace. It's all of God's mercy. It's all of the work of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to enlighten our minds as to what it means to have the hope of his calling. Do we understand this morning that we didn't find Christ? He found us. He apprehended us. He elected us. He called us to his great grace and to his great salvation. Now, without getting into any controversy over the differences over some theology that has been the source of much contention for centuries, where we have the Calvinistic point of view and the Arminian point of view, and which is right, Guess what? They both are. And they're both right because there are supporting scriptures for both positions. But I want us to understand that when we get so myopic and feeling like, well, this is my belief, well, have you studied the whole counsel of God's word? Because God might say something different in another place. And as so often is the case, truth is always intention. And we need to understand the whole counsel of God's word. As I said, when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, the Calvinists and the Armenians are kind of like worlds apart. The Calvinists believe that God chose specific people to salvation and others he condemned to eternal damnation. They say God is sovereign. He chooses whom he will. And don't question the mind of God. Whereas Arminian theology, which, by the way, is where our leaning is, claims that the scripture teaches man is a free moral agent and he can choose. God did not make man a robot. He never forces anything on us and he certainly is not forcing salvation on us. Calvinists believe predestination is based solely on the sovereign choice of God. But Arminians believe that predestination and election is based on God's foreknowledge. He's God. He knows everything that is going to happen before it happens. So he knows that when we are confronted with the claim of Christ, he knows those who will say yes. And based on that decision, he elects those to salvation. I like the way Harry Ironside, you may be familiar with that name, is a great Bible teacher of yesteryear, but he resolves the controversy very simply by saying this, that there is a door to salvation that has written on it, whosoever will may come. Jesus said that in John 6 and 37. They're the words of Jesus. Now, if Jesus said, whosoever, who does that mean? Whosoever. 
It means everyone, anyone. The Bible tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And those who say yes to that call to come to salvation, when they enter the door, they turn around and look on the other side of the door is written, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chosen. I just think that is glorious. And doesn't the word of God confirm that? In the epistle of Peter where he says, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. God selected you out of all the people in the world to know his salvation and to become a priest unto God. And yes, I will add, because of his foreknowledge, he knew you would say yes, and therefore he chose and he elected you. In this prayer, Paul labels those who are elected by God as those who are called by God. Even in our dead state, the Spirit of God made us alive to hear his voice calling us to himself. And that calling is explained in Romans chapter 8, a familiar passage of scripture where we read, moreover, whom he predestinated, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Did you notice something in those words that are highlighted there on your screen? That they are in this passage, each of them in the past tense. Now the past tense in the Greek language is especially important to consider because in the language of the scripture, the Greek language in the New Testament, these words in the past tense are called in the aorist tense which is very significant because it speaks of something that has been done in the past, but it was done once and for all, and it is seen now as completed. And that is why the scripture is able to say, in eternity past, when God saw that we would choose him, he predestinated that we would be saved. He called us, he justified us, and he also glorified us. Are we glorified? Not yet. I'm still in this flesh. I still fumble. I still stumble. I still fail. But God sees his work of salvation as so completed that there is this assurance it is completed and we can stand today in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ as those who have been justified, those who have been sanctified, and those who have been glorified as if the work has already been accomplished. It was finished from beginning to end. 
we're getting ready to approach the holy season of the passion of Christ and his wonderful resurrection. When Jesus on that cross cried, it is finished, he completed the work once and for all. And it doesn't have to do with me creating holiness in my heart. It just has to do with me having my will saved, huh. my will surrendered. And isn't that what we do when we come to Christ? We say, I surrender. We sang it this morning. I surrender all. I want my mind to be renewed by your word. I don't want to think old thoughts. I don't want my emotions to be my old emotions where, where I display emotions that are ungodly and unkind and unloving and, and are depressing and discouraging. You know, walking around in, in the doldrums aren't the kind of emotions that are pleasing to God. They need to get saved. But as we allow the word of God to work mightily in us, God is saving us. And he is making those changes in our lives. Paul prays that we would come to not only recognize his calling in our lives, but he says the hope. Yes, we know we've been called, but do we know what is the hope of our calling? Alexander Pope is popular for having said hope springs eternal in the human breast and that of course is speaking about how the human heart sometimes has the ability in even the worst of circumstances to believe things are going to somehow get better but the reality is they don't always get better do they we can wish that somehow, some way, we're going to have a, enough money this year to go on vacation. And we could wish for 101 different things. But those wishes don't always come true. They don't always work out the way we wish. And our hopes are so often dashed. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it is vastly different than this wishful thinking. And the context of that word that we so often hear in daily conversation. Oh, I hope, I hope things get better in the political realm. I, I hope things get better in the economy. I, I, it's wishful thinking. When instead, as believers, God wants to reveal to us that we have a hope that is not a wishful kind of thinking, but it is instead a confident expectation. It is an assurance that there is no doubt in our minds that if God is God, then things are going to work out according to his word. And that only comes as the eyes of our understanding are opened. And when they're opened, uh, I don't care what the circumstances say, God's spirit tells us you can have a confident expectation and an assurance. 
because the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross has made provision for all that we need. And that's precisely why we can have a hope today, because the work has been done. It's been accomplished. It's ours. We are complete in Christ. We have a hope in Christ Jesus. It's the hope of our calling. It's not just blind faith. The source is Jesus himself. He is the yes and the amen to every prayer that we pray. What did the Apostle Paul say? It is Christ in you. It's not you sitting in church on Sunday morning. It is Christ in you who is the hope of glory. He is your confident expectation. He is your assurance that you are firmly rooted in him. And the words of that old hymn say it so well, don't, doesn't it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy Lean on Jesus' name. It's because of who he is we can have the confident expectation that he will fulfill every promise that he has made to us in his word. Every promise. Paul reminds us in the first chapter in those verses 3 through 14 that we really never went through but th th this is one sentence. There are no punctures. When you read verses 3 through 14, this is one glorious explosion of praise to the God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's all ours. And one of those things is in verse 13. When you believed, you were sealed. You know what that means? When there's a seal, it cannot be broken because that seal is based on God's covenant, the seal of the promised Holy Spirit and God's promises are as certain as he is faithful. So Bible hope is not wishful thinking, is not some vague somehow, some way, maybe this is going to wake, work out. I, I sure hope so. Rather, it's the understanding, I'm called according to his purpose. And Romans 8.28 assures me that all things, how many things? All things. Do you not feel well in your body today? All things are working together for good. Does it seem a little gray out there today? All things, those gray skies, God wants to show you today that he has the power to roll away the clouds and to bring in the sunshine of his love, of his goodness, and of his grace. He wants to bless you. He wants to show you today that he is all sufficient for every need in your life. And that means today that our most difficult trials can still be filled, filled with hope and an assurance, a confident expectation. God's going to see me through this. I'm not going to be overwhelmed. I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm not going to be defeated because I know the hope of his calling. I know the hope of his calling. I know his promise. God cannot lie. 
God is a God who could do the impossible, but there are some things he cannot do. And one of them is lie. In preparing this message, I came across this passage in, the, in Hebrews chapter 6, and I've just been feasting on it. God, and I'm reading from a contemporary version here. God cannot tell lies. And so his promises and vows, the two things, his promises and vows are those two things that can never be changed. Do you see why we need the word of God? Because we need to lay hold of those promises. We need, we, instead, we're laying hold of our circumstances. And that's why we're defeated. We're laying hold because we're walking by our sight and not by faith. As believers, we walk on another plane. We don't walk according to what we see. We walk according to what the Word of God declares. And God declares, I am with you always. Do not fear. Do not be discouraged. Be courageous. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's a faithful God. We have to run to God for safety. Now his promises should greatly encourage us to do what? To take hold of the hope that is right in front of us. This hope is like a firm and steady anchor for our souls. In fact, listen to this. This is what just blew me away. This hope reaches behind the curtain and into the most holy place. Jesus has gone there ahead of us, and he is our high priest forever, just like Melchizedek. What is he doing in the most holy place? He is there speaking your name to the Father and saying, Father, I'm praying for them that their faith fail not. How can we be discouraged when we have this great intercessor who is so faithful, who is praying for us? And he never fails in his intercession. I love those words of Robert Mary McChain. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Ah, hallelujah. He's praying for me. He's on my side. If God be for me, who can be against me? This is the hope of our calling today. A confident expectation. What a world of difference there is in our lives today from when before we knew Christ. Because Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 2 and 12, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. Ah, is there anything more hopeless than seeing a hopeless situation? Why were they without hope? Because they were without God in the world. We were. And I think it's safe to assume 
And that maybe some of us feel today that we're living in such a hopeless world. We're in the worst of times. But guess what? No matter how dark the night becomes, you and I need to cling to the hope of our calling that he who has begun a good work in us will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. We need to cling to our hope that God has called us, that we have a purpose, we have a destiny, we have an assignment. The question is, are we just so deep in the doldrums that we've forgotten about why God has placed us here and all we're doing is bewailing and moaning and groaning the circumstances that are in the world today? But are we acknowledging, God, you've gifted me with something to do that no one else can do. And I want to be faithful to that calling. And in that calling, I'm going to lay hold of the hope that you will perfect that which concerns me. I will not listen to the lies of the devil that tell me I'm not worthy and I shouldn't and I can't and this or that or the other thing. No, Lord, you said you will perfect. And as I live, surrender to you. As I walk and I talk with you, you will be faithful to do what your word says you will do. It's our assurance today. And we have that hope because God says in his word, and I love this promise in the book of Jude, that this Jesus who is our hope of glory Jude said he's the one with enough power to prevent you from stumbling into sin. And listen to this. Bring you faultless before his glorious presence to stand before him with ecstatic joy. Do you get that picture this morning? I know that in myself, sometime I shy away and I, Lord, how, how can I stand before you? I just blew it. I just failed you. I just messed up royally. But God says, don't you know who lives on the inside of you? He is your hope of glory. He's the one who has the power. You don't have the power, but he has the power. And he has the power to present you faultless before the presence of his father in glory and say here Abba here's a specimen of my grace here's a specimen here's your son because he's trusted in my grace he's believed in the power of my blood that has washed away his sin and the power of my spirit that has enabled him to walk a holy life and so now I present him the King James says, with exceeding great joy. But I think I, like, I think I like this modern version better, with ecstatic delight. <laughs> oh, we're going to give Jesus' heart ecstatic delight when we stand before him on that day. This is the hope of our calling. We need the eyes of our mind, and the, which is the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we might grasp and tenaciously hold of that hope. Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, we will also 
appear with him in glory. That's the hope of our calling. You know, it seems to me when I was growing up in the church, we would sing an awful lot about heaven. We would talk an awful lot about heaven. But I feel like the 21st century Christian church has somehow put heaven off into some way distant out there somewhere, somehow. But do you know it's the hope of that glory that we're to experience that is to give us the motivation and the joy and the excitement of living our lives every day? And you say, but pastor, how, how, can I, how can I have that joy in my heart? You just don't know what a heavy burden that I'm bearing. You don't know the weight of the world feels like it's on my shoulders. But I'm reminded of what God's word says, that these things are not worthy to be compared to the glory. They are light afflictions compared to what we are going to experience when we see Jesus face to face and we're ushered into his heaven to live with him forever and forever. That blessed hope that enables us to live beyond the heartaches and the trials and the temptations of today and to have that Great expectation, that which our eyes cannot even imagine. It's so glorious. It's so wonderful. Isn't that what God's word says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, where Paul quotes it from Isaiah 64? As it is written, eyes has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What has he prepared for us? That which is unimaginable, that which is so glorious that words cannot even begin to describe it. Your mind can't begin to comprehend or wrap its mind around it. Just think that when we're in glory with him, that our sin nature and every carnal penchant that stumbles us and trips us up is gone forever. Just think when we stand before him in perfect righteousness and in total absolute love with God and love for one another to live in God's heaven forever and ever where sin can no longer spoil, sin can no longer defile. And in that place, the scripture tells us he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be any more sorrow or mourning or crying nor pain. You know, Kathy and I are getting older and it seems that we get up some mornings with a new ache or pain. But guess what? I'm possessed of a confident expectation that when I lay aside this mortal flesh, he's giving me a new body that will no longer know what pain is like because the former things have passed away. Oh, glorious day looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. John speaks about it when he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be like. You know, once you come to Christ, you realize life is glorious 
compared to what it was. We lived in darkness. We walked in death and knew destruction and sorrow and everything evil and hateful and dark and miserable. And when we came to Christ, even though there are days where the rain falls and the clouds are gray, the reality is there's a deep-seated joy and it comes from the hope of our calling. And John reminds us that as glorious as it is now, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. What? We will be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Now let's not stop there. The verse says everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. <laughs> there should be a motivation in our hearts. I want to lay aside that uncleanness. Peter says, purge yourself from all superfluity of the flesh and of the spirit. You know, we could talk about the sins of the flesh and we could say, thank God I'm not like my neighbor. They're out fornicating, getting drunk, getting high, doing all manner of evil. But our spirits can sometimes hold bitterness and malice and hatred and jealousy and covetousness. We need to purge ourselves of those sins of the Spirit because we know that someday we're going to see Jesus and he wants to make us exactly like himself. I know that we will never arrive, but he wants us to progressively become more and more like him because the more we become like him, the more glory and honor he receives from our lives. But it's all going to happen in completeness and in fullness when we arrive at that destination called heaven. I don't know about you, but it makes me hungry to be there. It makes me hungry and makes me cry out, oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come for your bride. Consummate the relationship that we've had with you all these years so that we could enjoy the fullness of all that you have for us throughout all eternity. Reminded me of an old hymn that we used to sing growing up. Some of us old timers will remember this. When all my labors, indulge me, please, just saying these words brings so much comfort. When all my labors and trials are o'er and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. And the refrain is, oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, be glory for me. The second verse says, when by the gift of his infinite grace I am accorded in heaven a place just to be there and to look on his face will through the ages be glory for me. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet 
just a smile from my Savior, I know, will through the ages be glory for me. If I had a better voice, I would start singing it this morning. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. The one who died for me, the one who laid down his life for me, that will be glory, be glory for me. And so we pray this morning that God will enlighten the eyes of our hearts through his word so that we will come to know the hope of his calling that God is with us. He not only predestinated us, he went through the whole process and he says, you're glorified. He sees us as a work that is completed and we are in Christ completed, but it takes a daily surrender of our will and a renewing of our minds as we lay hold of the promises of God and as we pray, Lord, Bring to me the revelation of the hope of your calling that you are not only with me, you are for me, you are in me. And if God be for us, who or what can be against us? And I have this confident expectation that by and by, when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story of how we've overcome and will understand it better by and by. But in the today and in the now, God wants to bring a mighty revelation of the hope of his calling. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. We want to close our service this morning by coming into agreement with the declaration of the truths that we've spoken in the song Cornerstone. So as we sing these words together, I want us to just say and pray, Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of my heart. Cause me to know what is the hope of my calling. Not in my mind, but the revelation in my heart that will change and transform me from glory unto glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Why don't we stand as we sing it together?